Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about minor orders. Uh, what we mean by that are uh, the exorcist, the lector, the porter, and different aspects of the liturgical life that one can be ordained to. So without further ado, episode 21 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Do you know where I just came back from, Jesse? Hold on, I gotta press record. Darn it. <laughs> Press record. It's already recording. Oh. I'm just joking. It'd be funny if it's they heard it and it's recording. <laughs> uh, Since I ended my sentence with a preposition, I should say, from where do you know I just came back? From, from where? The where Josephinum, from? Pontifical College Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, PCJ. Yeah. And do you know why I'm saying this? Why are you saying this? Because they just restored their <laughs> chapel. I had to pick up my glasses. They just restored their chapel. They had this big mural there originally from the 1930s, and it had Christ and glory surrounded by angels, then there were a row of saints, and beneath that were seven pictures of the major and minor orders that they had before Vatican II. So there were seven orders, seven stages to priesthood back then, the four minor orders they were called. Like religious orders? No, like holy orders, like priest, deacon, subdeacon, etc. And then they had uh, the three major orders. And so when they, this was, mural was painted over at some point and they reproduced it, but they didn't bring the seven minor orders back because they thought they weren't very relevant anymore because, why, Chris? Oh, this is on the mural? They didn't the bring mural. them back? Yeah, they put in seven saints or six saints in the Virgin Mary instead. Why would they not bring the minor orders back in their mural? Are you talking about the one that they just redid? They yeah. didn't bring them back? They repainted it. They recreated them, the painting almost exactly as it was, except they painted, they didn't reproduce the, the scenes of the seven major and minor orders. I think there's a symbol of each order still in there. Down at the bottom. Yeah. But they used to have pictures of like a seminary and right. getting this and a seminary and getting that and seminary like, and getting I like this. your pose. Yeah, I'm posing. <laughs> what, what are the minor orders? Or is that a question for later? Well, there are the four minor orders were what? Uh, lec- well, uh, Porter. Porter. Right? Exorcist. Which, exorcist. Exorcist. Acolyte. Lector and Acolyte. Okay, those are the four. Porter, Exorcist, Lector, Acolyte. Right. I, is it in that? I think it's in the, that order. Although. I think so. And then the three major orders were subdeacon, deacon, and priest. So back Mm -hmm. then, when you got the tonsure, which was a little clipping of your hair and your first minor order, you were considered in the clerical state. Mm -hmm. And so the doorkeeper was an old, old thing. And they say it goes back to the time when they needed somebody to guard the door in the catacombs from either the Romans or the Jews or whoever was trying to get them. And so somebody's job was to guard the door, and they became the porter. And then obviously lector and acolyte and exorcist are kind of still with us in their changed form. But they got rid of those four minor mm-hmm. orders, Chris. Yeah. Paul, Paul VI. Paul then, VI. Well, at least he wrote the thing about it. In yeah. 1972, yeah. in a document, a motu proprio called, Chris? Uh, Ministeria Quedam. Good way to yeah. look at your cheat sheet there. Okay, yeah. Ministeria Quedam. Wait, what do I got to do to get a cheat sheet? I probably wouldn't even know how to use it. It just means certain ministries and uh, some people are still kind of mad about this. They exist again, right? And the people who use the extraordinary form, they, they do make... Uh, sure. So I know a, a deacon now in the fraternity of St. Peter, and he's received all of these uh, minor orders. 
Yep. So that because they would celebrate according to the books that were in force in 1962, and so Ministeri Quaidam is 1972. So up until that time, they would uh, they would receive these minor orders. Are these like upgrades? Like or which upgrades? Like oh, you're much better at being a porter than we thought, so you get an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the stories I heard from one of the older priests at Mundelein is when you received an order, you had to exercise it right away. So when you're priest, you say mass right away. When you're deacon, you do deacon things right away. That when they got the the ministry or the minor order of porter back then, they would have to go to the sacristy, open the sacristy door, and close it <laughs> again. And that was their first <laughs> exercise of the. The ministry or the... Consummating the... Well, yeah, you, you have this thing now and you had to go exercise it right away. So you, it must have seemed a little silly, you know, like, go so, open a door and close well, it. And did, you have to do an, did you have to do an exorcism for the exorcist? I don't Well, see, know. that's just it. I, I think I remember asking this man, you said, well, when you received them, and I think you received a bunch of them together, uh, porter and exorcist and maybe a uh, lector, like all in the same ceremony. I said, do you, did you ever practice these things or exercise these things? Did you serve as being an exorcist or a porter? And he said, no, not, not really. And I think that, you know, that was maybe some of what was on, on Paul VI's mind is, you know, these things. We're not doing them anyway. No, yeah. we're not really doing it. And, and part of, you know, the, the, this sacred council has four aims in view. One is to adapt those things which can be adapted and ought to be adapted to the needs of our times. And Paul VI will say that in this letter, Ministeri Quaidam, that, you know, I wonder if, you know, we want to retain some of the history of these, but in practice, they're, they're not being used as they had been or perhaps as they ought. So we wanted to bring them up to date. Right. And part of the notion was a lot of the liturgical reformers were looking before the Middle Ages or looking before things became kind of normalized. And he says that these functions, um, rather than ecclesiastical offices, so to speak, became connected as training and preparation for the reception of sacred orders. So if you were going to be a priest, you should probably learn how to be a lector, right? But then eventually it became exclusively associated with people on the way to priesthood at the expense of others who had done it before. So if, if lay people were uh, instituted as readers or whatever it happened to be. And so it was time to kind of find that early origin and sort of redefine these terms. Right, but you see kind of a two... Uh two roads, two tracks that lead up to ministeri quidam. One is the use of these holy orders as preparation for ordination. And two, uh, just the use of these orders in the life and mission of the church, whether or not they had anything to do with uh, holy orders or not. And with ministeri quidam and the current legislation, both of these exist. So, for example, candidates for diaconate or priesthood still have to receive all of the, you know, these other orders. Now they're lector and acolyte. But, but they're, they're not, not orders restricted. anymore. They're, they're ministries. ministries. They're yeah. called uh, instituted ministries. Mm. But on the other hand, you can receive these without ever intending to become. Uh, that was going to be my question. Because, yeah. like, I could be an acolyte. You could, right? Yeah, and I am an instituted acolyte. In fact, yeah. What's the? Yeah. What's the how pro- did you get to be one? Well, Why when I was a novice with the Dominicans, they had yeah. us use. They used us as extraordinary ministers, and instead of. Mm making us extraordinary ministers, they made us institute acolytes, and then we kind of be ordinary ministers in that sense. Yeah, if today, if anyone is simply an instituted lector or an instituted acolyte, it's probably because he was in formation for ordination to either diaconate, permanent, or priesthood, or something like that, and in the seminary received these orders, but then didn't continue on with ordination. But still, there are some dioceses, I think of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, for one, that still trains and institutes lectors and acolytes you know, with these men having no intention of going on to to become ordained. And so they can be used in, in both ways. Right. So he says the minor orders, 
have not always been the same and the many functions connected with them have also been exercised by the laity sometimes. And so it was fitting to re-examine this question and adapt them. So he says, what is obsolete in these offices will be removed and what is useful will be retained. This is very kind of Vatican II mid-century modernity kind of scrape off the barnacles and anything new that is needed will be introduced. And uh, then what are the actual requirements for holy orders that that will be established? And so just kind of trying to set things right in this way. So he'll say at one point, and maybe you're going to get to this, Dennis, um, that when he gets down to the nub, he says, two ministries adapted to present day needs are to be preserved in the whole Latin church, namely those of reader and acolyte. The functions heretofore assigned to the subdeacon are entrusted to the reader and acolyte. Uh, consequently, the major order of subdiaconate no longer exists in the Latin church. Dennis, you pointed this out to me before we began. There is, however, no reason why the acolyte cannot be called a subdeacon in some places if the conferences of bishops. Kind of confusing, isn't it? There's no such yeah. thing as a subdeacon. However, Unless you, you can be called a subdeacon. Yeah. So if you're keeping track at home, we have these four orders, uh, four minor orders, four major orders. Uh, two of the minor orders, Porter and Exorcists, uh, after Ministeria Quaidom will not exist for the Latin church, at least in the Novus Ordo, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fraternity or celebrating according to the extraordinary form, you still have these. So you have still instituted lector, instituted acolyte, subdiaconate is gone. Unless you want to call yourself a subdeacon yeah. as an acolyte. Well, but only if the Conference of Bishops so decides, and right. they haven't at least in our country. Mm -hmm. And so the major orders, I guess now we would call deacon, priest, and bishop, which was the episcopacy was not listed before as one of the the major orders necessarily. Right. So they're really trying to figure out what is ordination. There's a lot of question about that. You know, is a bishop consecrated? Is a bishop ordained? These are questions. What is ordination? Can you mean? install a bishop? Well, a bishop's installed if they've already been uh, ordained <laughs> to a bishop. To right? install your bishop, move him. From <laughs> <laughs> slot A into peg B. Um, so calling this ordination, in a sense, wasn't considered quite right for these minor orders because th this redefinition of what an ordination was. So they started calling it institution. And then those folks were not considered clerics. So it was then when the clerical state begins with the diaconate, which is properly speaking, an, uh, an ordained uh, clerical condition. Yeah, but maybe a couple more things about these remaining minor orders then is one is that uh, they're still reserved to men. You can't be an instituted lector or an instituted acolyte uh, unless you're male. And this is kind of giving, uh, uh, acknowledging the history of these uh, orders or the, rather these offices, these ministries mm -hmm. uh, and their association with uh, the road to the priesthood. And so the instituted ministries of lector and acolyte are still reserved to men and men who have completed their 21st year of age. So you have to be... That mean you celebrate your twenty second birthday, I guess. So get a beer, be an acolyte. That's yeah. what those are the like one and two. Yeah, yeah. Got it. And they also said that uh, bishops' conferences can add other minor orders. And I think he mentions by name uh, catechist. So some countries, and I think you know, you Dennis, we have ministries. Students. Say again, ministries, not minor orders. Uh, right, sorry, thank yeah. you. Yeah, Institute of Ministries of uh, Catechists. And so we have students at the Liturgical Institute from India and uh, different uh, countries in Africa where still there are instituted catechists who are serving in these ministries. So this is not this. So all of these are different, really, be in some ways. Men or women? Yeah. Okay. Well, it would be up to the bishop's company. Because that's, cause that's yes. a new. 
right ministry Got but it. the but the instituted catechist is different from you know my wife who teaches ccd before mass i mean she's a she's a catechist but she's not an instituted catechist similarly i mean i read at church uh, but, at mass but i'm not an instituted lector that's something different as well so but these the, these two ministries of instituted lector and instituted acolyte are normative for the church and even though they don't exist in most places uh, at least on a typical sunday they remain normative for the church and for example in the general instruction of the roman missal gives instructions about uh, acolytes it has these people in mind and we're we don't have them and so sometimes when we read about what the acolyte does uh, it's confusing to us because it's we're they're saying one, about speaking about one thing and we're speaking about another thing. Is lector and reader are those just interchangeable words? Yes. Okay. Because yeah. they, does this document doesn't speak of lector; it only speaks of reader. Yeah, it used to. Uh, many people, not unreasonably, thought, well, maybe if we call the instituted one a reader and the non-instituted one a lector, this will help clarify things. But it never really. The church has never really used that. I'm an institutionalized kind of uh, usher. <laughs> Is that a thing? There you go. Uh, only if you need well, you know. See, but that would be sort of a vestige of of the porter. Oh, right. And so, I mean, you're carrying out the tasks that a porter so would have done. When you're ordained, you need to immediately ush somebody. <laughs> but there <laughs> is, uh, there is. I mean, when, when you see when when you consider these instituted ministries, right? And there might be, there's no doubt, pros and cons to having them or not having them. I mean, on the one, it limits, you know, that they're restricted to men of a certain age and whatnot. It requires a lot more formation before one can exercise this ministry. Those might be seen as, uh, you know, as drawbacks. On the other hand, these are ministries the church has devoted to particular elements of her liturgical ministry, right? We have a minister whose only job is to deal with things at the altar. And he's, that's, that's his designation, right? So that says something. And this, it does take a lot of formation to do this. And so that could be seen as a drawback or it could be seen as, hey, this is a way really to get uh, competent and faithful people formed to carry out a particular ministry. And I think, too, when you think, look at these two ministries, lector and acolyte, I mean, what are the two principal parts of the Mass? It's the Liturgy of the, the Word, word liturgy the Liturgy of the, of the Eucharist, Eucharist yeah. that the Church would set aside a ministry for those things would be very important. You know, for my for my part, I think if, if you had a, if you had a porter too, I mean this this kind of speaks to the importance of uh, ushering people right. not only into the church but out into the world to go out and to serve and whatnot. So, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I agree. It? I agree with you, Chris. You're very <laughs> smart. You know, there's a couple of sort of admonitions. It says the the reader is appointed and lists all the things he's supposed to do and read and all of that. But it says he is to meditate assiduously on sacred scripture to be more fittingly and perfectly available to fulfill these functions. And uh, so that's interesting. You don't just walk up there, read the book and leave. You're really supposed to have read this ahead of time, thought of it, understood what you're um, what you've read, what you're about to read. And you proclaim it to the people, not in not you don't read a book to the people. You become a kind of mouthpiece of God's voice to the people and this under, means you understand what you're doing and proclaiming it in a way that makes sense and and apart from the the, the proclaiming too uh ministeria quietum will say that um in addition to just doing the readings he's to direct the singing and participation of the faithful yeah, what does that mean i saw that i was like isn't that what the psalmist does or? oh wait i have a, i think i might i might be really off here but we talked at some point in one podcast about the person who's the common commentator yeah, commentator, that's a whole different... Okay. Although it could be, maybe this would be a part of it. 
Um, but I guess it, it kind of, I don't know exactly what it means, but other than he's kind of to assist in managing the participation of the people in the liturgy of the word. It says elsewhere he's to instruct non-instituted readers. Um, he's to instruct the faithful for the worthy reception of the sacraments. So again, this is not just, you know, Bill who's signed to do the second reading, you know, on the upcoming Sunday. The instituted reader is in charge of sacramental preparation for the people. And again, I think its history is, you know, in a time when not everybody knew how to read. If you know how to read, what what came with that great responsibility is, uh, what, what's the term from Spider-Man with great? <laughs> oh, with great response. No, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So if you've got the power to read, you've yeah. got a lot of responsibility. Instituted to, reader. That's right. So there's a lot uh, expected of you. And it's similar, too, with the Instituted Acolyte. He doesn't just serve at the altar. See, in our country, what we've done with the Instituted Acolyte is we've kind of divided it up into two ministries. One is altar server, and the other is extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. But the Instituted Acolyte is supposed to do all of those things, right? So he serves in the sanctuary, can also distribute Holy Communion. In ex listen to this. In extraordinary circumstances, he can expose and later repose the Blessed Sacrament. Whoa. without giving the blessing. All right, so, I mean, these are not, um, again, there, there's so much more involved in these, Jesse is still in these ministries. There's so much more involved in these ministries but than on the, the other simple hand, Sunday task. If you have readers who are not instituted, you, then you have instituted readers. It kind of seems like they're kind of the head reader or something, you know, like they're the grand poobah of the readers. Um, what is it to be installed? What, is, what does it mean to have... Or instituted, I mean, it just—it just, it just means you've given, you've been given some kind of stamp of approval by the church. You've been tried and tested to kind of be the—it's like a blessing. The head reader, the, the installation. <laughs> what is, is a blessing? Institutio, really? No, and they're not a head reader. You can have a handful of acolytes or instituted readers, um, but one thing is that what it means is it's it's permanent, right? So it's not a temporary designation. It's permanent. But I think you know, in the liturgical institute's way of looking at things, which is kind of sacramentally. It means that that instituted reader becomes a sacrament of the liturgy of the word, that his whole, or his whole being is, is meant to be uh, proclaiming the word, preparing people to hear the word, and he kind of becomes a living, breathing sacramental sign of the table of the word, which is so important in the church's liturgy. Then why wouldn't every reader be an instituted reader? I mean, why have this kind of special, yeah, Chris, special group and then these other people who don't have that training, that knowledge, that expertise? You wouldn't have. It's you, like having instituted yeah. deacons and then other people who are not. Well, in the extraordinary form, you uh, you would be there. You wouldn't have two groups. Mm -hmm. You would have uh, you would have lectors or subdeacons or something like that doing the readings, and so you wouldn't have instituted and non-instituted readers. So, what would you do today? I suppose you could have two bodies like this. I know at least in uh, in lacrosse uh, when we have uh, diocesan celebrations. Now we only use instituted readers whether they're in formation of the priesthoods or the seminarians or they're in the permanent deacon program, they're always vested. They always take part in the procession. They always sit in the sanctuary. They always sing the conclusion to the readings. And so all of these other things, especially when taken together, help to signify um, and hopefully facilitate the people's participation in this, this dialogue that's taking place between heaven and earth. They so, signify the hierarchical arrangement of the mystical body. Uh, yeah, they do that, uh, but again, they, they signify the importance of what they're, what they're after, what it is, what that they're doing. So would an instituted reader be considered preferable yes. to a non-instituted reader? Sure, 
Sure. Would it be more like uh, the other readers are kind of like extraordinary readers? <laughs> It'd be like the fullness, uh, fullness. If of you that. really, if you need them, you use them. But well, ideally, so, you'd have the institute. Is that right? Sort of, sort of. Uh, if you didn't use an acolyte, the person who would take his place is truly called an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. But if you don't have an instituted reader, and I step forward to do it, extraordinary minister. I'm not uh, fulfilling an extraordinary task. So, so these some boys ways, who are yes, altar servers are not no. instituted acolytes. They are not instituted. You have to be completed your 21st year of oh, age. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that, Jesse? Uh, I no, said it earlier. Are you, did you listening to this? No, yeah, no to be clear, I, did, I, I knew it when you just learned it right yeah. now, apparently, oh. because he said it about five or ten so minutes So on your 21st ago. birthday, you go out and get 22nd, acolyte? You have to... F- have, have th- completed that's the your joke 20. I already made. I said you get beer and then you become an actor. Oh, I heard you say something about beer, but I wasn't paying attention. It's <laughs> <laughs> complete. I think you said beard. Actually, yeah, you have to yeah. have, be old enough to have a beard. I'm still not old enough to have a beard. All right. Well, hopefully this answers the questions of oh, yeah. what that happened. You know, in our chapel at Mundelein, the big main chapel of Immaculate Conception, there are seven steps up to the altar, and each step has a word on it and has the four minor orders, and then the three top steps were the three major orders. And so, for seminarians who were pondering receiving all those orders there are seven steps to priesthood and there are seven steps of the altar where you'd be when you were a priest up at the seventh step um, saying mass and even though they're not around anymore they're they're an interesting reminder of what once was and um, how we connect with our past and our also past. they're like pretty in there so it'd be really hard to remove yeah there's a mo- inset mosaic yeah. words it'd really be hard to chisel them out yeah. anyway all right well let's answer a question so why go to the liturgical institute Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Dennis. Jesse. We got a question. Good. I like questions. From uh, Kunigunda. There's a lot of Kunigundas out there. There are more... I mean, they all have liturgy questions. Yes. 100% of the Kunigundas have questions about their liturgy. Well, what's the question this week? She says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Kunigunda number five. <laughs> Did you get that, Kunigunda? Great. I am it's like George Foreman has George one, George two. We have Kunigunda number five. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. What's the question? I am involved in a project at my parish where we are updating our baptistry. baptistry what is that? <laughs> baptistry? Baptistry. Yeah. Oh, fumbling on the words. And I am wondering about the two different types of baptistries, immersive and submersive. Could you please explain the difference for me? I will do my best. Uh, it's probably only one kind of baptistry, but there are, we talked a couple episodes ago about our favorite shuns, incarnation, mm-hmm. and infected. Uh, infection. Infection, yeah. <laughs> Incarnation, all that stuff. There's actually a couple of shuns in baptistry, too. There's immersion and submersion. And people don't always use the words properly, but basically the, the law of the church says there's two ways to celebrate baptism legally. One is immersion and the other is pouring. Pouring just means pouring 
water around somebody's head. So a little baby, maybe doesn't get dunked underwater, it gets water poured over their head. Um, some, this is often called uh, infusion. Oh. But yeah, that's what we did for ours. Just pouring over the head? Yeah. Okay. When adults get baptized, sometimes they like to bring out the symbolism of the idea that baptism is... Baptism, no, I can't say it. I know. It's infection. Baptism <laughs> is like a death. And so the idea is that you're drowned in a sense. And so... The old days, they used to put you underwater. You see this in you know the river down south when Baptists get baptized. You get dunked underwater. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go totally underwater, that's submersion. Oh, okay. So that no oh, part under, of you yeah. is above water. That is actually not required by, by current law. Immersion, however, is when you stand in water and you oh, get yeah. mostly water poured over your head. But you might be wet up to your knees, say. But you mm-hmm. come out of it pretty darn wet. Mm-hmm. Now... The National Statutes for the Catechumen that use the term partial immersion, which is to make things more complicated, which really, as we're talking about, it would be partial submersion, which is when the candidate's head goes underwater. So imagine you're standing in a kiddie pool and you dunk your head underwater, which you mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't want to do in a kiddie pool. Or you're pool. bobbing for apples. Something like that, right? Bobbing so you, for baptism. So your head goes underwater, but the rest of you doesn't. So the term is not um, uniformly used in the same way, but basically immersion means you get substantially wet. Submersion means you get totally underwater, and um, pouring means they just pour it across your head. So building a baptistry for a church, to go totally underwater, means you need a really deep baptistry. I mean, like really to get your whole body underwater, it probably has to be four or five feet deep, and that's probably more than most people want to do. It's a lot of water, a lot of weight, and so immersion is what most people do. You can step down a few steps, get water up to your knees, get substantial water poured over you, come out. Soaking wet, reborn, a new creature, and probably that's the best solution in most situations. All right, Kunigunda, best of luck with your baptistry. Did I say it right? Well done. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy for myself. So proud. Uh, and if you have a question for us, you can ask. You can, e- ask. You can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. Jesse, go stick your head underwater. All right. Partial immersion. (laughs) The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.